Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Durham Myers with HSBC with David Bloom, and they have uh, truly an outlier and now prescient call on dollar stability and then dollar strength. He joins us this morning. It's been dollar stability. There's recent dollar strength. What will it take for you to get the home run of a solid, strong dollar move? To be honest, I think more more the same. Uh, this, is, this is one of the problems, I think, for the market. There hasn't been enough glamour in the currency market, you know, it's, it's it's not been where the excitement is. You saw that huge you, swing you in equities. You're styling this morning. I mean, yeah, I know, but I, I, I've got a suit for radio. Bloom, Bloom I've got a suit for radio. Bloom can't do it, but you're, you got the glamour going there. <laughs> yeah, a hookspa, hookspa with charm. Um, the uh, I think, um, yeah, it's it's more the same. The dollar is a high yielding currency. You're getting paid for doing nothing, which is okay. again what I'm aiming for. You and I talked life. about this also this morning. Give us a compare. Uh, in in your world, what's the difference in yield between the dollar duration and the yen? You know, the yen duration. Well, you, okay, so you're getting paid two and a half percent just in the dollar for on let's the say one year. year on a one year on a one year. Pretty Excuse much a one year. So one year. Well, either it's a pretty flat curve, as you know. Yeah. Um, and then you're paying away the privilege. You have to pay for the privilege of giving money to the eurozone or to well to a number of countries around the world. So if you like, if you're an investor, your your first port of call is I got to make kind of two and a half three percent. <clears throat> If I want to be short dollar, just to break even, that that's my starting point. Yeah. So if nothing is happening in currency markets, well then you may as well just hold the dollar and and, and pick up yeah. those coins from in front of the steel. Paul Sweeney doesn't give a damn about this conversation, except he's <laughs> going over to Europe soon. So is there is there a reasonable bear case out there for the dollar? Uh, not one that's worked. I mean, there are, there are a number of bear cases out there for the dollar. Look, I would say a reasonable one, but a highly unlikely one is if Germany were suddenly to say, do you know what? Our economy is really struggling. We've got a U.S.-China trade war. Orders are struggling. We're going to do a fiscal stimulus. So, you know, the Trump fiscal stimulus was a game changer for the dollar, I would argue. Uh, the market misinterpreted it. It was a cyclical story, not a structural one. And I think if, if, if the Germans were to do something equivalent, then that could change the complexion of the euro. But it just does not feel so like you that's going to happen. But you don't think Germany is there yet and is not likely to be there in six months, for example? It doesn't feel that way. I mean, you you look at, and actually, to be honest, we're kind of holding it over Germany, but look at Canada. They were another one where you could have said there was a case to be made for big fiscal impulse. They didn't do it. Australia, again, could they have done? Um, they chose not to. So just internationally, there's not that appetite yet yet uh, for, for a fiscal stimulus outside of the U.S., it's interesting. I'm not sure, you know, if I'm Germany, what am I waiting for? You're, you're waiting for spontaneous improvement, <laughs> as, as I do with my kids who are right. constantly disappointed. Um, you know, it's, this is where we're at. And look, there has been some improvement. We, we saw some okay industrial production numbers out of Germany in, in, in one iteration, but orders are weak, PMIs and manufacturing are weak. So I don't know, you're, you're certainly hoping for resolution of US-China trade talks, and you're hoping that Chinese demand for autos picks up, because it hasn't as yet. So maybe they're the two kind of pinch points you're, you're waiting on in Germany. And, you know, I, I look at the currency market right now. Is it a time to make a lot of money? I mean, is it a frustrating time, or is there, is there real opportunity out there? I think, I think, to be honest, I think it's a frustrating time. Of the My salespeople hate how, me for saying that. How, but. I know, but... How do your sale? I don't need the the, the the linen of HSBC, but how do salespeople across all 
of FX just survive day to day. Well, do you know what's interesting, Tom? You know, you, you said about the importance of research. What I've noticed is salespeople, maybe because the market's quieter, seem to have a lot more time for writing opinion emails. So you're getting a lot more color and opinion coming from sales desks, because I think this is actually not that much happening. Um, which is why mm. research is kind of obliged to keep the thematic pieces going, the, you know, the higher level stuff, because otherwise we're just commenting on What's headlines. your higher level stuff for Beijing right now? If you were writing out a, and folks, with, with HSBC, the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation, your iconic tower there yeah. in Hong Kong, what do you write to thematically advise Beijing? Well, at the moment, our, our China view is that we're going to get something of an improvement in second half growth. We're going to have a U.S.-China trade deal by we're the end of the year. We're going to have a deal. Why? Because well, that's what it's in both sides' interest to get there. The problem is that we've got politics always weaving its way through this, yeah. this, this logic of economics. Um, and you know, that's <clears> why we've got tariffs in the first place. So, you know, what's the conviction right. level on that? I think it's pretty high, but the timing conviction, I, that's where it's less high. I, I, can you give me some help here? We're going to make a one, two, three, now a fourth leg down to sterling weakness, 126.63. Do you have a level south weaker on cable uh, where this really gets serious for the United Kingdom, or is it just noise? Well, we're already punching through a kind of a, a few support levels. So yeah. it's already developing into something, if you like, beyond recent experience. Um, yeah. There's no magic number. Um, but I, I guess the number that sprung to mind when you had the question was 110, which sounds really 110? Which sounds really I weird. I have not heard that. But one, <laughs> 110 is where you go if we get no deal. Okay, okay, wait, wait, wait a minute. This is important. Yeah. Brexit, two weeks afterwards, Pharaoh's still on medication. Okay, <laughs> fine. There are houses talking 110, even a few parity calls. We got as low as 120, maybe 119. Right. Are you suggesting as a house call we're going to go through the levels of late 2016 to a new weaker sterling? We've been suggesting since the beginning of Brexit, if we get a no-deal Brexit, you you, we'll you get 110. You that? Yeah, we got 110. If we get no-deal Brexit, cable will trade 110. That's Have you deal. suggested this to the various and sundry C-class officers of HSBC? Do you know what's interesting? I do a lot of, if you like, um, advising of, of, of corporates in the U.S. And, and others. And a key part of the risk management process is you have to understand the tail risks around this are enormous. That's a huge tail risk. Yeah, 110 on the downside, but potentially 150 on the top side if we get no Brexit. You know, that's what you're managing as a, uh, you know, a risk manager at a corporate. And I said, I said to him, how, how much are you hedged? Yeah. And he said, enough not to lose my job. Yeah. And then that's, that's the hedging ratio. Farrell just emailed in from, I think, Philadelphia. He's on his way over to Iberia. Francine has a golf stream. Liverpool or Tots? <laughs> oh, Oh, no, I don't like either. But Liverpool. I, I think, know I you think, don't like either. I know, but I know. I know. I. But I know. I, okay, I'm going to go with Liverpool. Liverpool. It's yeah, the yeah. obvious call. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Well, so. we can't have all my calls being kind of consensus. I, just, I feel in the seven o'clock hour, I've got to do soccer talk. You know, it's like, Paul, of course, you don't me. care. I don't care. <laughs> Michael Barr, do you care about Pharaoh's soccer talk? Well, I have to because I cover sports. <laughs> <laughs> I have to. You have to. I have to. We really don't care. I mean, John's not listening. But the very fact you're calling it soccer is upsetting enough anyway, but we'll just leave it there. It's the best we can do <laughs> oh god chris collins of bloomberg cornered me the other day aston villa i'm like i don't care anyways paul sweeney and dara thank you so much dara meyer with hsbc Kathy Jones joins us now with Schwab on Fixed Income. Kathy, what is the Schwab call on inflation? 
Well, we're looking for it to uh, to stay pretty stable um, and in the long term sort of edge lower. We've got the complication of the tariffs uh, in the short run. So if those get passed along to consumers, we might get a bit of a notch up. But true inflation in terms of, sort of demand-driven inflation, we're we're just not seeing it. I mean, you're not seeing it. And I guess there's services to sustain. And Chairman Powell talked about the Dallas trimmed. And it's like, it's what we all feel like 2 3% inflation. Everybody out there agrees that's inflation. But goods inflation is rolled over. Does that fold into the fixed income mar- market with a great missed guess on inflation through the rest of this year? Yeah, I think it does. And, you know, not only has the Fed been um, inaccurate in their predictions for unemployment, they've been quite inaccurate in their predictions for inflation. See how she says that so nicely. (laughs) She just, just massive shade on Chairman Powell. (laughs) Well, you know, the thing is, as as we see some of these goods prices come down, now now there are exceptions like iron ore and, you know, a few others. Yeah. as we see a lot of input prices kind of rolling over and starting to come back down, um, that you, you have to believe that that will translate into less upward pressure on inflation. And so inflation looks like it's steadyish right around this level, and the volatility of inflation has been extraordinarily low over the past couple of years. So not only has inflation been low, but the movement up and down of inflation has been quite, really tight in a very tight band. So, Kathy, as I look at the WIRP function on the Bloomberg oh, Terminal, yeah, pulling out some Bloomberg functionality, looking, uh, market's looking at about a 70% chance of a rate cut by the end of the year. Is that something you're envisioning as well? Well, uh, you know, we do think that the probability of the next move being a cut is greater than the probability of a hike. Whether it's the end of this year or early next year is kind of the question in our minds. But between the slowdown that we're seeing in the economy after the ebbing uh, impact of the tax, uh, tax cuts and spending increases and the global economy being soft and this reconsideration of policy by the Fed, which we hope will right. come to some conclusion, um, I think that likelihood is a cut, not a hike. Yeah. Kathy, uh, when you when you look at what we do, I want you to take a given Schwab uh, uh, client. They've got a pot of money, whatever the size of the pot is, and they go, we're financially repressed. We can't work in the Kathy Jones world. We need more yield. We need more return. What do they do in the summer of 2019? Yeah, it's tough. I'm, I know I'm out visiting clients in Allentown, Pennsylvania uh, today, and <laughs> It is the big question mark now that rates are back down to this 2.5% area. What do I do if I'm retired and I really don't want to take a lot of risk? How do I put together a portfolio? And I think you just have to have you know, realistic expectations that you're going to need a combination of, of you know, solid core fixed income that's you know, treasuries, investment grade, corporates, uh, high quality munis, but then you're going to have to spice it up if you want more income. Spice it up. Stocks and- uh, you know, maybe REITs and MLPs, preferred securities. You're going to have to put it all together to get a blend that's not too risky, yeah. but does give some yield. You learn spice it up. That's at Northwestern <laughs> MBA. You learn right. the phrase spice it up. Yeah, we didn't learn that at, at Fuqua, but um, I know what she's saying. I know what you're saying, Kathy. Spice it up. Uh, so, Kathy, you're out in Allentown today. Is is Will you be asked about emerging markets today in Allentown? Probably not. Um, I haven't had questions about emerging markets recently. That was kind of a hot topic a while back. 
um, but it seems to have died down. We were underweight last year. Uh, we went to neutral uh, when valuations on uh, emerging market bonds kind of returned to a, a more normal level, but we're still not big fans right now because the currency risk seems pretty high to us. So in a high yield space, I mean, one could argue, um, given even if we are, you know, 10 plus years into the economic cycle, there's still good credit quality in the high yield market. Is that, and clearly that's where you can find some yield. Are you selective in the high yield market or are you, are you comfortable putting uh, some of your clients into the high yield market? You know, we think some allocation to high yield is okay uh, for people who you know, kind of have a longer term time horizon and have the risk appetite, but we're pretty cautious on credit right now. <laughs> And our concern yeah. is, is just what Chair Powell uh, expressed about the, the movement down in, in average credit quality in investment grade and what impact that might have if you get some downgrades into high yield. High yield market's just not that big to absorb uh, what could be a wave of downgrades. So we're pretty cautious on credit. The, the other area we're really cautious on is leverage loans, the bank loan sector. It, it, well, that's important. In what way well, is that going to affect our listeners? Well, if they have a fund um, that invests in bank loans, which is, is possible, um, they may want to take a close look at that because we're concerned about the lack of covenant quality. Um, and if we go into yeah. an economic downturn, these are companies that could be affected by it. Kathy, thank you so much. Kathy Jones with Fixed Income at uh, Charles Schwab. The Schwab Center for Financial Research is well. were worried about the inflation up or inflation down call right now, and I think a lot of people are focused on this, this is the conversation of the day. This will definitely be out on our podcast. I looked at the podcast numbers yesterday. Thank you, everyone, for, for we are blown away by the subscriptions and the daily listening and the length of listening of our podcast, Spotify, Apple Music, all the what, iTunes. Is that how you say it? Yeah, it's Apple. Is it Apple yep. Music yep. or is it iTunes? I, uh, I like iTunes. That's, a, that, that, that's everything. <clears throat> that's everything. Anyways, thank you for the podcast. And Alberto Gallo of Algebras will be there today. Alberto, you, you totally push against the high inflation argument. Why? One reason is that there is lack of fiscal stimulus. We're late in the cycle. China is stimulating the economy, but it's around the stimulus is around a quarter, fifth maybe of what they did in right. Europe is still undecided. Germany is not pushing the, the, the pedal. Uh, and the U.S. can do infrastructure spending, but it seems a very long and, and difficult project to actually implement. Right. The other reason is monetary policy is loose, but rates low for a very long time can actually become deflationary because they benefit large firms. They um, create a liquidity trap where zombie companies don't get restructured. They don't they get cleared in the market. Right, right. Exactly. They choke the, the smaller firms, which create productivity and new jobs over time. Then does negative interest rates accentuate all this? Everyone is telling me it's a failed experiment. How does Europe, and frankly, all oh, what is it, Paul, 11 trillion of uh, negative yeah, exactly. paper right now? I, I mean, how, Alberto Gallo, do you extricate yourself from the zombie market of negative interest rates? 
Unfortunately, the base case is we're going to stay in, in this environment until many of the structural issues in Europe are solved. So the ECB has been talking about Eurozone safe assets. They want to push for a common bond uh, for European countries to have a common financing and potentially also fiscal policy. You can't have for very long you know, a monetary union without a fiscal union. Draghi has been saying it for a very long time. So in the meantime, the patient is, is sort of stuck in an anesthetic, uh, with an anesthetic in, in this operating room, but the, the doctors don't come and do the operations, and the doctors are the politicians. Um, so this is where this is a scenario where we are in. It's kick the can economics. Uh, you want to be long rates. Uh, you want to be long, maybe not boons, but OITs, Portugal, Greece. You want to be long credit. You don't have the escape velocity to benefit from, uh, from you know, to benefit in equities or in asset classes that require growth right. acceleration. See, Paul, how he goes to physics there? Yep. <laughs> it's, like, you know, it's like aerospace with Alberto. Exactly. So, Alberto, one of the um, underpinnings for a strengthening European economy is uh, good trade, global trade, with, uh, including China. And I was just reading your stellar note from mid-April when you came back from spring IMF meetings, and one of the summaries there was it, it appeared at that time that trade tensions were abating. Obviously, how the world has changed in just several weeks how concerned are you, how concerned is the IMF and the European economies for what seems to be heightening trade tensions? It's a big concern because Europe is the region, the most open region to trade in, in the world. You know, Germany in particular is very exposed to, uh, to Asia uh, exports um, and, and also other countries like Italy or Spain. So Europe is suffering from increased tensions. On top of that, there's internal divisions like Brexit, which make life even harder. Having said that, uh, positioning is extremely short. Um, you know, Europe has disappeared from the map of many investors. And therefore, if you have a little bit of positive news, uh, things can trade up, for or, or they just don't trade down as much as you may think. For example, you know, the euro has, hasn't really gone down that much this month, uh, even though there were right. a lot of negative news on trade. And that shows you the, the already bearish right. positioning. Away from what Algebras does, Alberto Gallo, what is big money doing in Europe? I mean, if they look at the yield differentials between Italy and Germany or, you know, that, what is institutional money actually doing? I believe that there's a good appetite for relatively safer countries, so France, you know, Netherlands, Belgium, down even to Spain. Uh, when yeah. you look at the riskier jurisdictions like Italy, where you still have a frac fractured coalition, um, there is, there's been very, very light positioning. So investors have not come back. Okay, well, we've got to rip, Alberta, the credit market. This is critical, Alberta. The time we've got left, we've got to rip up the script here because you viscerally understand Italy. Can you be an Italy optimist? Can they extricate themselves from this political coalition of a coalition they're in? You're probably going to have to face reality. The reality at the end of the year is the budget law. They have created a hole of around 40 billion euros in additional spending. So they have to face this big hurdle. They'll argue about it because both parties, Northern League and Five Star, have promised that they wouldn't increase VAT, but they will have to increase taxes, You know, VAT in particular, to 
um, make for the shortfall they have created. So there's, there's going to be an argument. Um, the good news is the market is not long, so it, this will not come as a surprise, but there's going to be an argument, and it could end in a better coalition uh, with maybe a more pro-business government, or it could end in a technic- technocratic technical government. So I expect some volatility. I'm not. I'm. I'm still on the sidelines there as well. Okay, interesting. In, in Italy, I prefer oh, to oh, go somewhere else. Albert, you prefer to go somewhere else. As clear as that, Alberto <laughs> Galos with Algebra uh, uh, today. Greatly appreciate his uh, perspective. Our conversation of the day on Brexit. Therese Raphael writes for Bloomberg Opinion and is brilliant on the fabric of Brexit against the fabric of the United Kingdom culture. Therese, on every newspaper is a quiet story adjacent to all the idiocy. And that is British Steel is done. British Steel, Harold Wilson, July of 1967, and really almost coming out of Clement Attlee in World War II, and all the emotion of Thatcher. What is the symbolism to anybody distracted in London that British Steel is going down while they're fighting about Brexit? Well, I mean, for the Brexiters, Tom, it's part of this narrative of betrayal and a government yeah. that has failed to deliver and is therefore incapable of managing the economy. It doesn't seem to be hurting their claim that a no-deal Brexit uh, would not be bad for, for Britain's economy. So you have this incredible disconnect between the facts on the ground. Of course, British Steel is a complicated story. It's not just about sure. Brexit, is it? Uh, but this disconnect between the facts on the ground and what each side is trying to claim that these that these moments mean. Uh, but at the moment, I think it, you know, British Steel is getting a lot less attention than what's happening in Parliament and Theresa May's you know, last-ditch effort to try right. to get her deal through, which it seems you know, doomed, as we've discussed before. And, and Therese, you've been so good about being balanced about this within all the emotion. And you know, I, I honestly don't know whether Therese Raphael Paul Sweeney has leave or remain, which is the way it should be. I can't say that about the Telegraph, where they're clearly <laughs> like Brexity and they're all pumped up in that. Ian Duncan Smith, who's been very wonderful on our program, he's been very honest with me about his core emotions. Our remorseless Remainer government has hijacked Brexit. That's true, isn't it? Well, first, on on kind of how we position these things as, as journalists, I should just you know, say that it it makes no sense to be contemptuous of either side. This was such a highly contested, it was a highly contested vote. Is this a Remainer government? I don't think uh, one can say that. It has a manifesto pledge to deliver on the referendum. It happens to be a minority government, and that's the most important thing. And the fact that they simply did not have the numbers in Parliament for any Brexit deal because of the reliance on the Northern Ireland uh, Democratic Unionist Party uh, is, I would say, reason number one why Theresa May couldn't get a deal over the line. In the end, it was a binary choice. You can have an open border in Ireland as a Good Friday peace agreement and 
common sense dictates. But you cannot do that while leaving the customs union unless you want to put a border in the Irish right, Sea, right. which the conservatives don't. So you know, these are the reasons. Um, these are the reasons why, you know, in the first order, May couldn't get her deal passed. So, Therese, I was shocked. Maybe I shouldn't. I'm not shocked. Maybe surprised just how quickly Theresa May's latest deal kind of just lost all momentum. What happened? Yeah, I mean, I think it was uh, not enough for any of the four different constituencies she needed to satisfy. And one of the things we've noticed um, as this process has has you know continued month in and out is that each side is getting more entrenched in their position. So, you know, for the DUP, uh, she you know, she promised a legal commitment uh, to find alternative arrangements. So the backstop, they said, that, you know, that's not enough. Um, for the people who wanted a second <clears throat> referendum, she promised a vote on whether to have one. And they said, no, that's yeah. not enough. You have to advocate for it. Yeah. So none of the things that she can okay. offer now is enough. All right, Teresa, in the time we have left, to your observation on the minority government, which I think is brilliant, if Prime Minister Johnson steps out of 10 Downing Street in a couple days <laughs> or a week or three weeks, is he more minority-ish or is he more majority-ish. What's the prediction there? Well, I think the the parliamentary arithmetic doesn't change at all if Johnson becomes <laughs> prime minister, okay? We still have the same parliament. What it would mean is, you know, he'd have a lot of support from the conservative party base, but nothing new in parliament. So I think we head to October 31st, the deadline yeah. for this latest extension and he goes to Brussels oh. and he says please may I have another extension we, we could do a whole longer discussion with Teresa Raphael just about Lord Patton's comments on <laughs> Boris Johnson uh, in <laughs> Asia which were just extraordinary uh, look for those folks Challenged as well in the white marble of Capitol Hill is Kevin Cirilli, our chief Washington correspondent. Kevin, let's wander back a lovely 40 days or so to Mr. Mnuchin getting a lecture from the lovely congresswoman from Los Angeles over how you run a hearing and who's in charge. Who's in charge today on Capitol Hill? The secretary of the Treasury, as he has testimony, or the various chairmen and chairwomen? No, I got to be honest. I think both Secretary Mnuchin and Chairwoman Waters would say that they're each in charge. And the back and forth uh, that continued from last month's hearing continued right into this morning because Secretary Mnuchin moved up the start time of the hearing, and he's going to have the hearing wrapped up by 1045 to get back to the White House for that infrastructure meeting that President Trump has with Democratic leadership. But the, the optics of this and the tension between uh, uh, Chairwoman Waters and, and Secretary Mnuchin just clearly, clearly continuing. Yeah. What does what does the executive branch risk by this approach to uh, a very staid and, and entrenched process on Capitol Hill? Well, they risk alienating uh, suburban voters and independent voters and, 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 and the voters that they have to win back, quite frankly, that they lost in 2018 in a lot of those suburban districts like in Texas that flipped blue. But the bottom line is uh, they don't see that much of a risk uh, to pushing back against these investigations. Political whack-a-mole is how I described it earlier to you, Tom, on Bloomberg surveillance. But look, I I I just spoke with Chairwoman Waters. She had to duck out of the hearing to go to a caucus meeting. 
And she said that they're going to use every avenue available to them in order to get President Trump to hand over those tax records. And I also do want to note just the headlines that Secretary Mnuchin said uh, at the hearing about regarding trade policy, because he said that he has no plans as of now to travel to Beijing for those U.S.-China trade talks. He's urging Congress to, to ratify USMCA or face, quote unquote, significant economic downside uh, if it's not ratified. And finally, this is a really interesting policy moment. Congressman David Kustoff, he's a Republican from Tennessee, asked Secretary Mnuchin what he should be telling farmers who are concerned about the trade implications of the U.S.-China trade talks. And what Secretary Mnuchin says is that the revenue used from tariffs, a portion of it might go to help those farmers. So that's some new uh, wordage that we're hearing from the Treasury Department. Wordage. If you're long enough in Washington, Paul, he didn't learn that at Penn State. It's wordage. 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 So, Kevin, what are the... Wow. (laughs) So, Kevin, as it relates to the tax returns, realistically, what are the next steps here once this uh, hearing is over? It's in the courts, you know? I mean, listen, and I I didn't get a law degree at Penn State, but but it's going to the courts because the U.S. District Judge here in Washington, D.C. earlier this week complied or or ruled and sided with Democrats in the sense that the judge said uh, that, 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 you know, they would have to hand over some of the tax records. Um, But the, the Treasury Department, the White House, they're fully prepared to take this thing all the way up, uh, including and appeal it, even if it has to go to the Supreme Court. What would the Supreme Court do? Is there a betting within the parlors that you frequent in Washington? You know, let's assume it goes this judge, appeal, 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 appeal. I mean, do we know what the Supreme Court would do? Well, they'd have to decide. I mean, the the reasoning that the White House is saying is that there's no, quote, unquote, legislative purpose for there to Mm -hmm. be handing over tax records. And Democrats are saying that they have the authority to do that, given their constitutional authority. Uh, to go into investigation. So, you know, I, I think ultimately we lose sight of, one, the rarity of this yeah. situation of tax records. It's a national, the, the, the bottom line is that folks want to know whoever's in the White House, right. if they have financial dealings to hostile foreign powers. And that's the crux of all of this. Yeah. Uh, but the Republican polling suggests that, re, that Republican voters aren't, aren't really paying too right. much attention to this. Kevin Cerulli, you know, I, I understand you're in the white August halls of, uh, of Capitol Hill, but if we could spare another two minutes uh, with us. Yeah. The president's polls, I mean, I know Mike Allen and Axios shows the poll every day, thumb up, thumb down in a 40% range. How is the president actually doing in all the polls guys like you look at every day? Well, so, you know, and, and Mike knows this better than anybody. I mean, you've got to really... The, the po- national polls are a good snapshot to some extent, but the polls that everyone inside of the Beltway and the parties are looking at yeah. are, are very, very much more smaller and granular. And you've got to go, for example, to Western Pennsylvania to see if the Biden effect is taking impact there is it? In, the Con- in Connor Lamb country. Well, I think they would say that it is. Uh, and that's why you saw President Trump campaigning in Pennsylvania earlier this week, just a day after yeah. Uh, Biden's former rollout on the other side of the state, Philly, my neck of the woods. So um, you, you've got to look at Youngstown, Ohio, and, and these types of, of towns, right. uh, because that's 
there, there were 70,000 okay. voters who went from Obama to Trump in the well, last cycle. Okay, you mentioned Youngstown, Ohio. Tim Ryan's on with Steph over at MSNBC right now. How does a gentleman from Youngstown, Ohio, get traction to get from 1% or 2% polling up to 5 or 6% polling? What does a guy from Youngstown I'm gonna, do? I'm going to cut through the kind of the political chatter. He's going to have to pray that uh, he gets an opening in the centrist lane. And then that would that would have to be a Biden collapse or another centrist okay. candidate, like a Beto collapse. But most people think that Beto is kind of struggling right now. Um, at least that's the chatter in, in the okay. way. But for Ryan to, to catch off, right. he's going to need a strong debate performance, boost his name ID, and pray yeah. that the centrist drops out. One final question. If you need a cup of coffee at Capitol Hill, what do you do? I, oh, I mean, well, actually, I'm down in the Rayburn, uh, where am I, in the Rayburn uh, cafeteria, to get my cup of coffee, literally as we speak, <laughs> or I go to cups. It's just, it isn't my friends Kathy and Charlie over on the Senate side. They're the nicest people. Or Miss Norma in the Senate cafeteria. Very good. Great there people. we go with news you can use. Kevin Cerulli <laughs> and Miss Norma. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.